Just a note before we begin this episode, we recorded with our guest Heather Barr before Thursday afternoon's explosions at Kabul airport. For up-to-date reports on what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan, you can visit thejournal.ie. Welcome to thejournal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what is life like for women in Afghanistan right now? Firstly, a big thank you to Eva for filling in for me over the last two episodes. And over those past couple of weeks, the world has been watching Afghanistan, where the withdrawal of US troops by President Joe Biden immediately resulted in a full takeover by the Taliban. Despite pleas from all of its international allies, America plans to be fully evacuated from the country by Tuesday the 31st of August. There has obviously been a rush from tens of thousands of people, many of whom worked with the UN and the US over the last two decades, to leave the country in fear of retribution from the Taliban. The international community fears Afghanistan under the Taliban once more could return to being a narco state and breeding ground for terrorism. There is also widespread, well-founded terror for the women of Afghanistan. How will they be treated by the Taliban? What is their future? Did their opportunities and safety just vanish overnight? Today we're going to focus on those final questions. And to do that, I'm joined by Heather Barr, who is Associate Director in the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. She is also a former researcher on Afghanistan, where she lived from 2007 to 2013, and she was back there as recently as April. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Heather. Firstly, can you bring us up to date on the ground situation in Afghanistan right now? It's a chaotic and scary situation. Um, You've probably seen the scenes at the airport, and as you say, the, the evacuation is coming to a close very quickly, and so people's level of desperation is rising. Um, People are feeling that if they don't get out of the country in the next perhaps 24 hours, that window will have closed and and they'll be trapped. Um, There's a lot of wondering about whether people will be able to to get out through land borders, whether commercial flights will begin again, whether the Taliban will allow commercial flights or allow people to get on them. You know, and and this includes a, a lot of women who, um, you know, are afraid that they could be targeted by the Taliban. Some of them have already seen that um, the Taliban have come to their homes looking for them if they're not there, interrogating them if they are there um, in ways that, you know, really seem designed to intimidate them, to communicate to them, you know, we, we know who you are and we know where you are and we're watching you. Um, and so, and there are many women who, when Afghanistan fell, felt that they they had no choice but to flee and yet have not been able to. And what have their experiences been of trying to get out? What pathways have they tried? People are finding they're having to, they're going to the airport repeatedly and not being able to get out. It's been getting progressively more and more difficult to actually get into the airport. So the issue is not really about whether you can get onto an evacuation flight. The problem is that even people who have a space on an evacuation flight, have a visa to enter another country, have a passport, have all of their paperwork, are, are not able to get into the airport. Um, they're being blocked from entering. The Taliban or Taliban guards are, are assaulting people sometimes who are trying to get into the airport. The conditions are, you know, there's a huge crowd and a risk of, of you know, people being trampled because of, of the crowding at the airport. It's a very, very frightening situation. And some people are taking their chances anyway, and others are are feeling like, 
it's hopeless and they, they just have to stay in hiding and see what other options might be available um, in the weeks and days ahead. And what type of person, or is there a type of person trying to get out? Like I'm kind of thinking of things like, is money a big part of it? Is it people with money or is education a big part of it? Or is there people coming from all walks of life to the airport? I think there are people from all walks of life who who are trying to figure out how to get out. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people in Afghanistan who are extremely poor. Um, the World Bank was estimating last year that 61 to 72 percent of Afghans are below the poverty line. And if you are struggling to feed yourself and your family every day, then obviously that that makes it harder to think about being able to even afford, you know, to go to the airport, to try to get to a land border, to potentially pay smugglers, any of these options. But certainly, you know, there's a long history in Afghanistan of, of people being refugees. Many millions of Afghans have been living outside their country for a long time. Most of them in this region, um, Pakistan and Iran are the two countries that have received the largest numbers of Afghan refugees. And so I think a lot of Afghans from all walks of life, even if they haven't tried to get to the airport in the last week and a half, they're, they're thinking about whether life is gonna be tolerable for them under this new Taliban structure and and if not what what their other options are and their other options are all very very tough ones you know people know the Taliban they know the Taliban from the period from 96 to 2001 they know the Taliban from the the places where the Taliban's been in control in in recent years and months um you know in an increasing number of places and and so they're they're taking that information on board and considering whether the other options may be less bad. Yeah. And the other question on the kind of the, the different experiences that people have, is there a different experience for urban and rural um, people in, in Afghanistan? And how is that translating over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's a good question. And one of the challenges is that the news coverage about what's happening in Afghanistan has been very concentrated in Kabul. I mean, that's always been the case, but particularly at this moment, I think that, you know, journalists are one group who have already been targeted by the Taliban in the last 10 days. And so we're seeing a lot of media outlets going silent, women journalists in particular being very intimidated. Um, and that's really cut down on, on how much information we have about what's happening around the country. The international journalists um, who are in Afghanistan, to my knowledge, are all in Kabul. I haven't seen anyone reporting from, from anywhere else. And so it, it, it really means that we, we've got very little information about what's happening in the rest of the country. In terms of the kind of urban-rural divide, um, more generally, yeah, I mean, this is something that, that people have pointed out often is that, you know, advances on women's rights were more successful in urban areas than in rural areas. Um, but, but, you know, there's an interesting organization called the Afghanistan Analyst Network that does very good analysis on Afghanistan. And they published a, an important report maybe a month or two ago where they, they talked to a lot of women in rural areas about, you know, what were their priorities? You know, what did they see in terms of you know, what were their thoughts about the peace process when there was one about the Taliban, et cetera. And what they found is that the concerns and priorities um, of rural women were not really very different 
to those of, of urban women. They Everybody wants the freedom to leave their house, to walk around, to find a way to earn a living, to send their daughters to school. That's not a thing that just people in cities want. Yeah, it, it really points out to the basicness of the human rights that we're talking about here. You mentioned that women are trying to leave. Are they trying to leave solo or is it families, family units in the main or people who need a man with them to even get to the airport? What's the situation for those women now? Um, some women have, have gone on their own, but I think that as things move forward in the longer term, we're going to see a lot of families taking decisions together about, you know, whether, you know, I think people are going to be watching very closely these questions about whether girls are able to study, whether women are able to work. And then, you know, families will be making decisions if it turns out that girls in their family are going to be pushed out of education. Girls are young women, university students. Women are going to be pushed out of their jobs. You know, the families will be deciding if, if that means that they need to uproot themselves and 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 find a way to leave the country. And, and you know, this may be a, a question of survival for some families. In some families, you know, women are the breadwinners, um, you know, in female headed households and also, you know, in other families as well. You know, I don't think the Taliban probably wouldn't want to accept this, but women are part of the economic life of Afghanistan. And if you suddenly make it impossible for them to earn a living, then there will be a lot of families who have lost their ability to survive. Yeah, let's go back to what life was like under the Taliban rule pre-2001. We're talking about women here. So like, what was the situation for most women in Afghanistan then? So the Taliban banned almost all education for girls and women. And they banned almost all employment for women. So they made an exception for mostly for women in the healthcare sector, women healthcare workers. But aside from that, there was there was pretty much no employment permitted outside of the home for women. And women um, were not allowed to leave their homes without being escorted by a male family member as a chaperone. And you know they were required to wear the burqa, which is this covering which covers you know almost your whole body and, and just has a, a kind of a mesh uh, area in front of your eyes for you to see through. So it was a very, very restrictive situation. And, and that's sort of the, the question that people are having now is, is how similar will the rules now be or not be to, to those rules? How consistent will the rules be? Or is it going to vary a lot from, from one place to another? And we have, we have some information to you know, to look at in regard to that, because um, the Taliban has been gaining control of increasing parts of the country over recent years. And so we can look at, at how they um, have actually governed in those places. And, and you know, and what we've seen in research that Human Rights Watch has done is that there's there's been quite a bit of variety. It seems like a lot of the decisions are made by a local commander as opposed to, you know, being sort of handed down from the, the top of the organization. Um, in general, the restrictions have been pretty harsh on women and, and in many places not that different to what they were in 2001. On education, there's been some ability of communities to kind of push back and convince Taliban commanders to be a bit more flexible. And, and one consequence of that is that there have been, you know, a significant number of places where they've allowed girls to go to primary school um, through sixth grade, but, but typically not further than that. Um, and, and one thing that, that we found, which I, I think is, 
is perhaps particularly alarming at the moment is that it did seem that as the Taliban sort of consolidated their control in an area, their rules would become more harsh. And so I don't know what that means for a situation where they now control almost the entire country, but we're certainly concerned that it's not good. Yeah, because the improvements over the 20 years, can you talk, just talk us through some of the improvements that did happen post-2001 and um, before then the Taliban started taking control of regions again? Sure. So two weeks ago, um, Afghanistan was not a wonderful country for women. It was still a, a very, very difficult place. And, you know, and, and my organization has spent a lot of time over the last 20 years criticizing ways in which we felt that the Afghan government um, was not respecting women's rights, ways that we felt that the international community could do more to be respecting women's rights. But having said that, um, there had been extraordinary progress because 20 years ago, women were starting from this incredibly low point of, of you know, the, the Taliban having banned education and employment, as I, as I talked about a moment ago. So in the last 20 years, millions of girls have gone to school who would not have gone to school otherwise. So there's this whole generation of educated girls and young women. Um, women joined the parliament. The parliament at one point had more women than the, than the U.S. parliament, which, you know, Afghanistan should be proud of. Women ministers, women judges, women prosecutors, women police officers, women soldiers, um, women pilots in the Air Force, um, women's football team, um, women playing music and engaging in the arts. You know, there was, there was this feeling of optimism, I think. There's this generation of young women who grew up in the post, what we thought of as the post-Taliban period, who, you know, I think were, were determined to seize all these freedoms that had been denied to their mothers and their older sisters and to go out and change their country and change the world. And, and those are the women and girls who I think are hit hardest by this because it, it feels like everything they worked for, everything they dreamed about has been ripped away from them overnight. Is there any optimism that they've gone so far that it would be very hard for the Taliban to rip it off them? Or are the fears very naturally going to the worst case scenario? So I think the big question on a lot of people's minds, you know, a week and a half ago was, you know, what will the international community do? You know, the, um, the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 was, was sort of sold to voters in a way using the concerns about the, the plight of women under the Taliban. Um, I mean, I'm from the US and I remember very clearly, you know, Laura Bush giving a radio address, Sherry Blair um, gave a speech and, you know, other leaders and in other countries that contributed troops sort of also um, talked a lot about how Afghan women were suffering and, and we needed to liberate them. And that was one of the reasons that it was so urgent to go to war in Afghanistan. Now, we knew, of course, that, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that no one was that bothered about this on September 10th, but suddenly on September 12th, it was a it was a huge concern. Um, but I, I think that, you know, Afghan women heard these promises for 20 years that, you know, we will stand by you, we will never abandon you, you know, like your cause is our cause. And, and they were funded and encouraged um, by the international community to, to go out and, and fight for their rights and, and try to bring reforms in Afghanistan. And um, 
when the Taliban returned is what will the international community do? What will, you know, they, they've promised to support women's rights in Afghanistan forever, no matter what. So how are they going to react in this moment? And I think that now a week and a half later, it's a bit clearer um, how the international community is going to react and the news is not encouraging. Um, you know, we saw there was a Human Rights Council session two days ago um, where, you know, there was lots of very powerful testimony about the situation, uh, human rights, particularly women and girls. And then the council essentially decided to do nothing. Um, the G7 had this emergency meeting um, and they all sort of, or some of them, encouraged the U.S. to extend their deadline and at least make sure that they were evacuating everyone. And then the U.S. said, nope, we're sticking to that deadline. And everyone kind of went, oh, dear, you know. Um, so I think it, it's not over. There are still things that the international community can do and, and, and should do and ways that we and, you know, Afghan women and, and organizations that care about their rights can continue to pressure um, the U.S. and other countries to, to stand by their responsibilities. But it hasn't been smooth going, that's for sure. And what have the Taliban themselves been saying about how they will treat women? And I guess how much pinches of salt do we need to take with what they're saying? So they've given two press conferences. Um, one was on Tuesday of last week, um, two days after they had gained control of Kabul. And then they gave another press conference this week. The first press conference, they they were, I think, striking quite a conciliatory tone. They talked about how you know men and women have equal rights and women would enjoy all of their rights. I mean, even then, for people who've been longtime Taliban watchers, there was some language that, you know, set off some alarm bells because, you know, mixed in, they said, you know, in accordance with our rules, women can engage in health and education and other areas. And, you know, women can enjoy all of their rights in the framework of Islam. And so this is language that the Taliban has, has used for many years and, and seems like it's always code for, you know, However, we say they're allowed, they can have equal rights to the extent that, that we, we say they're allowed to have them. And, and, you know, it's never been clear that they didn't think they were giving women equal rights in the framework of Islam from 1996 to 2001. So I don't think they really promised anything. I think it's interesting that they wanted to sound reasonable, um, but I don't think they actually made any commitments. And then you know, we saw even the day after that, um, you know, women journalists were being intimidated and told not to work. And then there was this press conference. The second press conference was the day before yesterday, um, where they took a much harder tone. Um, and they said, you know, they talked about not allowing Afghans to leave the country. And they said that women should stay home from work. Um, for the time being, because the security situation is not good. And their explanation for why the security situation is not good is that their fighters uh, don't, haven't been trained and don't know how to respect women. So, I mean, that's a sort of classic, you know, women should stay home because men can't behave themselves kind of argument, which feminists all over the world have been fighting against for a long time. Um, but the question about that, that kind of instruction to stay home is that, um, you know, I don't think that Afghan women have a lot of optimism that that's actually temporary. And is, is that actually happening now from the minute that that diktat was put down that they aren't 
leaving their house? Is that is that the situation currently? I don't think I don't think every woman is locked in her house. I think women are going out to to do the shopping, and I think some women are are still going to work. I saw um, I saw a journalist talking about how some beauty parlors were open in Kabul, for example, um, after that announcement. Um, but I think that it certainly will have affected a lot of women. Most women, most women are probably not feeling safe going to work, and perhaps not feeling safe even leaving the house or, or leaving the house alone anyway. So, I mean, the thing is, is that when you're the Taliban and you've engaged in such brutality in the past, people, people don't wait to, to find out how serious you are about your order. They assume that you're quite serious because they know um, what violence you've inflicted. Yeah, part of you talked about the international community putting pressure, but what happens next internally in Afghanistan for, you know, men who aren't part of the Taliban, who don't want to see the women in their family treated like this, but I guess there's very little choice for those people internally. It's the, the pressure has to come externally. Would that be a correct reading of it? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. I mean, Last week, we saw a few protests, some of which were by women or led by women. And, you know, I think this was kind of a this was kind of a test by these protesters to see what reaction there would be from the Taliban and what support there would be from the international community. Um, And there was definitely some violence by Taliban toward protesters um, and not very much, I think, in terms of a response from the international community. I think, you know, I think the women who were protesting certainly were, were sort of trying to see, you know, whether, you know, who's going to stand by them. I'm not sure how much they can count on, on the rest of the world to, to be there beside them because on their own, you know, a few protesters on the street in Kabul, I don't think they're going to be able to overthrow the Taliban. I'm very worried about what risks um, there are to them. In that situation, then, could we just go back to a 1999 climate in Afghanistan very quickly? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think one of the the challenge with the international community is there's, there's two challenges. One is they don't have a ton of options in terms of leverage. And the other is that I don't think there's a lot of political will. In terms of leverage, the the strongest sort of forms of leverage that they have probably are aid conditionality and sanctions, you know, this is a really tricky issue because um, most of the, about 80% of the Afghan government's budget comes from international aid. And most of that aid has already been blocked. And, you know, this has the potential to cause an enormous humanitarian disaster very, very quickly in the country because there were already really high rates of malnutrition, food insecurity, um, you know, there's a, a drought that's happened. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a, a huge impact in Afghanistan, et cetera. And so um, if the international community just says, OK, that's it, we're cutting off the money, it's going to cause enormous suffering. And that suffering is not going to happen mostly to the Taliban. It's going to happen to, to regular Afghans. But what the international community needs to do is, is figure out a way to both um, exercise some influence over the Taliban government based on aid and sanctions options and continue to deliver assistance to the Afghan people. And this is not impossible. This can be done. It's about figuring out how you deliver aid, 
what conditions you're going to attach to it, having a discussion with the Taliban, negotiating that. And, and we really hope that that process of thinking that through and getting started on that is, is underway. It's going to be, it's going to be tricky and it's going to require that the international community reaches a consensus among, among themselves and, and approaches this together um, and carefully and, and compassionately and quickly. So I think, I think we're waiting to see, and, and that comes back to the issue of political will, you know, do countries have the will to kind of take on this, this quite complicated and difficult process? Do they, do they care deeply enough about what's going to happen to Afghans, particularly Afghan women and girls? Just before we leave, Heather, I know people will be listening and I know people all across the country here feel a bit useless when they're looking on and and seeing the plight of what's happening to the people in Afghanistan. Is there anything that they can do, um, I guess, beyond donating to to the charities money? Is there anything that they can do um, to help the situation in Afghanistan? One thing we can do is, is really pressure our governments to... Um, to, to really engage not only on the issue of aid, but also on the issue of how the UN is going to be involved in Afghanistan going forward. And one thing that is so important is, um, is monitoring and reporting on human rights. And the Human Rights Commission in Afghanistan has been pressing for a UN fact-finding mission. Um, and, and this is something very, very important that could help to hold the Taliban to account um, so this is something we should all be asking our governments to to press for. Yeah, and Ireland will play a, a more pivotal role than usual, taking on the presidency of the UN Security Council in September, which is, you know, timing that is actually really good for a small country like Ireland to be able to talk to powers like the US and, and China um, in the way that will be over the next few weeks. Heather, thanks so much for joining us on The Explainer and talking us through and best of luck with your work in the next few weeks and months. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Heather for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really great way to make sure other people will discover it, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.